Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, Our Illustrious God-Inspired Mothers. They were remarkable women indeed. It's based upon the lectionary reading for Sunday, June 13, 2010. This spring, I enjoyed a brief binge reading the desert monastics of 4th century Egypt. Like most early Christian literature, and as you would expect from the harsh geography of the remote desert, most of what we know about these early ascetics is written by and about men. The sayings of the desert fathers, collected and compiled from the 4th through the 6th centuries, for example, contains 1,202 stories and aphorisms, about 12, uh, 127 abbas, but only three amas, or mothers. Those are the 46 sayings of Theodora, Sarah, and Slinkletica. The Lives of the Desert Fathers is similar. It's written by seven monks from Jerusalem who journeyed to Egypt at the end of the 4th century to document the lives and teaching of the desert dwellers. A few passing references tantalize us with the offhand observation about, quote, the throngs of monks and nuns past counting. As far as we could ascertain from the holy bishop of that place, we would say that he had under his jurisdiction 10,000 monks and 20,000 nuns. Even if we allow for enthusiastic exaggeration, it's clear that many women flocked to the desert, just like the men. But in most texts, they remain nameless. The Lausiac history by Palladius in the 4th century, however, contains a shocking surprise. Similar in style and content to the previous two works, it contains 71 biographical chapters on ascetics in Egypt, Palestine, Syria, and even Asia Minor. But in his very first paragraph, Palladius says that he especially intends to honor the desert mothers. I quote, It is written also to commemorate women far advanced in years, and illustrious God-inspired mothers who have performed feats of virtuous asceticism in strong and perfect intention. These holy high-born women, writes Palladius, live the best and loftiest lives. Palladius names dozens of women they learned about on their trip and documents the organized communities of thousands more. There's the graceful maiden, slave, and martyr Potemia. He honors a servant named Alexandria. He recalls an order of women that numbered 300 renunciants from every walk of life. Peomun, he says, was deemed worthy of the gift of prophecy. We meet Olympias, who disposed of all her goods and instructed many women. We learn of Candida in the most renowned Galatia. He writes that in the town of Antino are 12 monasteries of women and in the town of Ansira lived many other virgins, probably 2,000 or more. They were remarkable women indeed, he writes. Chapter 41 is simply called Saintly Women, and was written, he says, quote, 
to commemorate the courageous women to whom God granted struggles equal to those of men, end quote. It names a dozen women by name, one of whom led a company of 50 virgins, including the Roman matron Paula, a woman, quote, highly distinguished in the spiritual life, a genius of a woman, end quote. Most prominent of all is the Blessed Melania, a Spanish woman who was widowed at the age of 22. One of the wealthiest women of her time, after her husband died, she traveled to Egypt where she spent up to half a year making the rounds of the desert and seeking out all the holy men. She built a monastery in Jerusalem from her private funds, lived there for 27 years, headed a company of quote-unquote 50 virgins, and supported from her private means the bishops, solitaries, and virgins who visited them. Palladius describes Melania as, quote, most erudite and fond of literature. She turned night into day, going through every writing of the ancient commentators, three million lines of origin, and two and a half million lines of Gregory, Stephen, Pierus, Basil, and other worthy men. And she did not read them only once and in an offhand way, but she worked on them, dredging through each work seven or eight times. Melania is most famous for the instruction she gave to the renowned ascetic and fellow intellectual Evagrius of Pontus. Luke's Gospel for this week reminds us that perhaps we should not be surprised by these stories. We read in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many other women. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. The prominence of women in the life of Jesus is deeply embedded in the Gospels and highly unusual for that time and place. One time the disciples expressed amazement that Jesus even spoke to a woman, John 4:27. Respected rabbis would not have associated with women like Jesus did. In a well-known prayer found in three rabbinic traditions, thanks God for not being born a Gentile, a woman, or an ignorant man, none of whom enjoyed the privilege of studying the Torah. Four famous women are listed in Jesus' genealogy of 46 names in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Tamar was widowed twice, then became pregnant by her father-in-law Judah, who mistook her for a temple prostitute. The offspring of this incest were the twin boys Perez and Zerah. And we know that Perez is a relative of Jesus, according to Ruth chapter 4, 18 to 21. Rahab was a foreigner and a whore who by her lies protected the Hebrew spies. She's mentioned three times in the New Testament. 
as a hero of faith, Hebrews 11.31, an exemplar of good works, James 2.25, and as the great-great-grandmother of King David, Matthew 1.5. Ruth was a foreigner and a widow who married the wealthy Boaz, King David's great-grandfather. And then Bathsheba, the subject of David's adulterous passion and murderous cover-up, was the mother of King Solomon. These four women were part of Jesus' family of origin. Today the women mentioned in Luke chapter 8 are barely known to us. Mary Magdalene is mentioned several times in the Gospels. Joanna was a witness to the resurrection, according to Luke 24.10, while the identities of her husband Cusa, Susanna, and the, quote, many other women, end quote, who supported Jesus, remain lost to history. In Luke's day, they must have been well-known people of significant financial means who had left their husbands and families in order to underwrite a sizable group of itinerating evangelists. Perhaps they were some of those first believers who sold their lands and houses and used the money to support the Jesus movement that we read about in Acts chapter 4.34. Whatever the particulars, when it came to following Jesus, these women were, as the poker expression puts it, all in. These women traveled with Jesus and his followers for three years, supported them, witnessed his crucifixion, and then were the first heralds of the resurrection. Mark writes that at his death, some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Mark 15, 41. And then after the ascension, the women, quote-unquote, as if their identities would have been obvious to the original readers, are mentioned as part of the core disciples in the upper room. Acts chapter 1, 14. It's no exaggeration to say that women from all walks of life deeply shaped and supported Jesus and his followers. Women, observed Dorothy Sayers, were the first at the cradle and the last at the cross. In the words of Palladius's eyewitness accounts, they were our God-inspired mothers who were remarkable women indeed. And now for further reflection. In addition to the three works on the desert monastics mentioned above, which, by the way, are short, inexpensive, and very readable, see the book by Dorothy Sayers, Are Women Human? Grand Rapids, Erdman's, published in 1971 and then again in 2005. It contains two essays from her collection of essays called Unpopular Opinions, originally published in 1947. For books this week, I review a 6th century text by John Climacus, The Ladder of Divine Ascent, 
translated by Colm Lubheide and Norman Russell. Introduction by Callistus Ware. New York, Paulus Press, 1982, 301 pages. Like many of the mothers and fathers of the early church, we know little about the life of John Climacus, or in the Greek, John of the Ladder, who died sometime around the year 649. Hardly anything is known about the author, writes Colum Lumhide in his preface, except that he passed 40 years of solitude at a place called Tholus, that he became abbot of the great monastery of Mount Sinai, and that he composed there the present text. But no one disputes the enormous influence of the work that gave him his name. With the exception of the Bible and the liturgical books, writes Collictus Ware in the introduction, there's no work in Eastern Christendom that has been studied, copied, and translated more often than the latter of divine ascent. Every Lent in Orthodox monasteries, it is appointed to be read aloud in church or in the refectory, so that some monks will have listened to it as much as 50 or 60 times in the course of their life. There's no evidence that John was ever ordained as a priest. The Ladder of Divine Ascent is addressed specifically to monks who were living the Cenobitic life of community. But John would be the first to urge that God meets each and every person right where he or she is. For this reason, the latter deserves to be read by all Christians. Although it's easy to caricature the austere asceticism of some of the earliest monks and hermits, and to be sure there were gross abuses by some, the early monastics have much to commend to contemporary believers. For an ancient text on an obscure topic, John is surprisingly readable and relevant. Like many of the early desert fathers, John has a wicked wit and sharp sense of irony based upon his love for and deep insights into the nature of being human. Humor is always close at hand. Why is it, he wonders, that a person who has renounced great wealth fights over a dirty rag once he enters the monastery. John also models the self-effacing modesty and brutal candor about the battle of the Christian life. I quote, It is hard, truly hard. He's done his best to construct a spiritual ladder, but he nevertheless calls himself, quote, a second-rate architect, end quote. The 30 steps of the ladder cover all the major themes of desert spirituality. The deep ambivalence about the mind-body-soul relationship. The inherent uniqueness and diversity of, event of every individual. Absolute obedience to a director. Renunciation. The play of virtue and vice. The priority of personal experience over mere theory the ultimate importance of the interior inward disposition and motive over any outward spiritual technique, the gift of tears, passion and dispassion, silence and solitude, 
dreams, and impure thoughts. The categorical prohibition of judging others for any reason at all. Every form of bogus piety, and however hard the fight, or however catastrophic the fall, the refusal to despair. Take heart, all you sinners, writes John. God is the good, the supremely good, the all good. With him, quote, there is a time for the sowing of labors and a time to reap the astounding fruits of grace. From the 6th century, John of the Ladder, John Climacus, the Ladder of Divine Ascent. For poetry this week, I review a film from Jordan. The title of the film is called Captain Abu Raid from the year 2007. Abu Raid isn't an airplane pilot at all, even if he wears a captain's hat. He's merely a janitor at Amman's International Airport. But the neighborhood kids think he's a real thing, and so the so-called captain regales them with his own unfulfilled dreams about travel to New York, Paris, and beyond. After the truth comes out, when the boys see Abu scrubbing the airport floor, quote, on his knees like a dog, end quote, their relationship only grows deeper because of his paternal wisdom. This film is also a pointed critique of gender roles, poverty, and domestic violence in contemporary Amman. Maroud's father, for example, is a violent drunk who beats him and his mother. Tarek's father forces him to skip school and sell candy. In Noor, a gorgeous 30-year-old real airline pilot that Abu meets in the airport, detests her father's ham-handed efforts to arrange her marriage. The lives and destinies of Abu, Maroud, Tarek, and Noor intersect in unexpected ways. I love this film for its tender story and spectacular Jordanian scenery. Captain Abu Raid was Jordan's entry for the Academy Awards Best Foreign Film. It's in Arab and some French with English subtitles. Captain Abu Raid from Jordan, the year 2007. And finally this week, for poetry, we continue our series of poems by John Berryman. John Berryman lived from 1914 to 1972 and has a series of poems called Eleven Addresses to the Lord. This is address number three. Sole watchman of the flying stars, guard me against my flicker of impulse lust. Teach me to see them as sisters and daughters. Sustain my grand endeavors, husbandship and crafting. Forsake me not when my wild hours come. Grant me sleep nightly. Grace soften my dreams. Achieve in me patience 
till the thing be done. A careful view of my achievement come. Make me from time to time the gift of the shoulder. When all hurt nerves whine, shut away the whiskey. Empty my heart toward thee. Let me pace without fear the common path of death. Cross am I sometimes with my little daughter. Fill her eyes with tears. Forgive me, Lord. Unite my various soul, soul watchman of the wide and single stars. Eleven Addresses to the Lord, number three, by John Berryman. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June 13, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.